0: welcome to we go there i'm lexi and i'm nikki and our favorite conversations are when someone
1: starts by saying this might be tmi but but hey we go there because there's no such thing as having too much information when it comes to your health and wellness we dive deep into topics interview experts and get answers you need because knowledge is power and feeling empowered is what we're all about so let's go there
0: Today, I am sitting across from Dr. Julia Maraca. She is a perinatal epidemiologist, an assistant professor at McMaster University, and head of PERL, which stands for Perinatal Epidemiology Research Lab. She is clearly a wealth of knowledge, and today we're going to be diving into a very important but often overlooked topic of forceps and vacuum deliveries and the impact that these types of deliveries can have over the long term in terms of pelvic health for for women. So this is also really interesting for me because I was actually born by forceps at McMaster University 41 years ago. So, you know, full circle moments here, Dr. Maraca.
2: Yeah, this is, I, I, I was mentioning earlier and I'll mention it again, I love what I do because I always get to hear people's stories about births, whether it's their own birth, like you just shared, or uh, the birth that they birthed, you know, another human being or their mom or their sister or the, so anyone who who hears this work always has their own personal story and it just really enriches, enriches all of our work, really.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is, gosh, I'm so excited that we're we're talking about this. I just did a poll, actually um and we're going to talk about essentially the impact that forceps um we'll call it an operative vaginal delivery so forceps or vacuum can have on the pelvic floor and we've i i noticed in some of your research talking about you know unfortunately the incidence of um tearing is greater so third and fourth degree tearing with it, it, if anything i'm saying is incorrect please cut me off i'm definitely paraphrasing here but essentially sure, yeah. there's a higher mm-hmm. risk of Um, anal incontinence when you sustain more severe third or fourth degree tearing, which is more commonplace with forceps, right?
2: And I just did a... Right? Let me just interrupt you there. Please. (laughs) <laughs> um, so you mentioned uh, you, the higher risk of anal incontinence if you have more severe third or fourth degree tear. So third or fourth degree tear are the severe tears. And so we, we if you're interested, we can talk about what the differences of those degrees mean like anatomically. Um, but it doesn't have to be a, a more severe tear. It's just the presence of a third or fourth degree tear has been shown to increase your risk of a, a plethora of different both Physical and psych- psychological uh, morbidity, but um, certainly anal incontinence is one of the most distressing, and and some of the stats around that are, are quite alarming.
0: Yeah, and this is I just did a story poll. I mean, very obviously informal um, to my audience on Instagram. So we had um, I think basically I did the math of the people who responded. Twenty two percent has have experienced um, anal incontinence.
2: Yell it, yell it! Twenty-two percent. This is not something I love. You, the, the name of this podcast is perfect for this issue. We go there because we need to go there. We need to talk to the, about this with one another. How many of us are experiencing these symptoms and never talking about it is astounding. So all that that. You know, poll that you just took was probably one of the biggest pieces of information that I will ever have about anal incontinence uh, incidents or or prevalence because we all of our our estimates are underestimates because people are so stigmatized they don't share. So thank you for doing that. I found that I find it fascinating, sad, fascinating, but also heartening that let's talk about that.
0: Mm-hmm. We have to. I mean, I and I wrote, it's funny, I, I had anticipated people. So I wrote, this will not be shared. This is completely anonymous. And mm-hmm. so then people will hopefully feel more comfortable coming forward. And, and then all of a sudden people go, oh my gosh, I'm not alone. I'm not the only one. I'm no longer as ashamed. Now maybe I will seek help for this problem, right?
2: Absolutely. And the other thing is just because 22 of us are experiencing it doesn't mean that we have to. It doesn't make it normal and something that we have to you know, just live with because we're people who decided to have a baby. So we, we sometimes these things are normalized, uh, but we'll talk about the fact that this is not something that has to be normalized. It's not something that going forward we should we should you know include in 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 a narrative as just like you know a side effect of normal childbirth. It's not.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is something that's so internalized, isn't it? You had a great line. I kind of want to read it. I pulled it from one of the articles that I I was reading. I was doing You're a really bit embarrassed. I was no no no. It, this is so powerful. I'm going to read it right now. So this is something. The assumption that one's continence, pelvic, and sexual health are not quote true measures of morbidity is a legacy of the paternalistic paradigm that assumes obstetric trauma is an acceptable outcome of childbirth. Evidence from Canadian hospitals suggests that consent practices for OVD. And again, that means operative vaginal deliveries reflect these assumptions. I was like, <laughs> I, I copy pasted it and put it in my stories.
2: <laughs> That's so sweet. No, I I mean I I worked very hard on that sentence because it's the culmination of really a decade of of screaming about these rates of injuries. And feeling completely despondent about how low they are on the priority list of kind of, you know, when people are looking at maternal well-being, they just don't factor these injuries in. And there are several reasons for that. It's not because anybody's mean and wants to, you know, hurt women and not care about them. But it's because often the sequelae or the the consequences of these injuries aren't seen For decades after. So you may not notice that you've been injured in a way that has, you know, uh, compromised the capacity of your anal sphincter to function normally until 10 years later and your obstetrician will probably never know about it. So, or the person who delivered you will never know about it. So, (laughs) excuse me. So, um, so that's the problem. The problem is the people who are actually and in the delivery room with you, when these injuries occur, and that perform these deliveries when these injuries occur, aren't the same ones that are seeing the consequences. So often those links aren't made. So they're forgotten. They're not really counted in what people think is important about consenting about ch- over childbirth, about discussing pr- uh, in prenatal sessions, for example, and about factoring into their decision making when it comes to choosing an intervention when you're in a situation where you would need an intervention.
0: Oh gosh. Yeah. The consent pieces is something that I talk about so much with my students, but it is so hard to find your voice in that moment because you do feel sort of like you're scared. You're feeling very anxious. You're told that your baby might, you know, be compromised, you know, baby might be in trouble. Like you need to just essentially sacrifice yourself to get the baby out safely. And, and it's, it's a very, you know, even just having the hospital bed in the room and, you know, the, the sort of a power distance there as well. There's a lot, so much, there's so many places we could take this conversation.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Concentering labor. I don't know if you sp- spoke to Rohan about this. Is something we talk about often. It's really, it's very, we we really just don't understand how to proceed. It's very poorly characterized, I would say. And that's, again, it's not for lack of trying. It's just a really sticky time where, you don't know. Some some people just don't want to know. They just want you to tell them what to do. They don't want to know all of the possible things that could go wrong. And some people do. And so it's really hard to kind of navigate what is most appropriate, and what will make people feel most supported and respected. But um, the other thing is, it's just it's it's not okay to assume, right? So so when we when you know you just said. Someone says, you know, says something's wrong with the baby. Something's gonna, you know, we're or we're, we're worried. We we think we got to we got to move fast in this or this direction. Then a lot of people will just say, oh, we assume that in that situation, this is what an individual would want. We can't do that, and I think it's very it's it's at least easier. I think most of your listeners would agree that it's easier. Seems easier for people to do that when it's a woman, and it seems even easier. For people to do that when it's uh, a woman in kind of a a medical setting. So I think it's easier for people to assume they know what's best for you Mm. um, when you're in a, a place of vulnerability like you just described, but it's not okay.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. My gosh. So first of all, let's back up a little bit. I have a list of questions. I want to make sure we don't overlook them. So first off, and I know you have the data obviously on this. You're the researcher. How commonplace are forceps births?
2: So the, the frequency of forceps deliveries differ depending on where you live. Okay, so in Canada, they occur in in the entire population of Canadian um, birthing individuals, it's about 2.9%. So we're just under 3% of our births are forceps deliveries. And so you can compare that to a place like the US. And so in the US, their rate of forceps deliveries is like 0.5%. Wow, oh my gosh. (laughs) So mm -hmm, So they don't do much forceps at all. But Compare that to the UK and so the UK has rates of forceps deliveries that are closer to 7% and they're similar in Australia. So most places in the world have lower rates of forceps than we do. The places that have equal or higher rates are essentially the UK, Australia and some Western European countries. um, France for example but France is a little bit different because they have a a different An instrument that they only use there called a scapula, Um, uh, excuse me, not a scapula, a spatula. But um, they the 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 rate of forceps delivery here is is just under three percent. Now keep in mind that changes in different subgroups of women. So if we're talking about first time moms, for example, that rate increases. So in first time moms, we're closer to five or six percent of all deliveries that are delivered with back with forceps. So that's a big chunk. Mm-hmm. if you if you want to think about an absolute numbers, it's about it's about thirty five thousand deliveries per year in Canada.
0: okay, of first time or in general in total in general, but obviously more common with first time yeah delivery okay and and so hmm, what about vacuum?
2: So vacuum is is more common. So vacuum occurs about eight and a half percent in our overall obstetric population in Canada. When you look at places like the U.S. again, let's compare us to the U.S. They're closer to five percent. But then again, when we compare us to the U.K. to the Scandinavian countries and to Australia, they have even higher rates of vacuum than we do. Particularly Europe and the Scandinavian countries, which are a subset of Europe, they almost exclusively use vacuum delivery. So this is something that we can talk about why this happened. But in several places, they've abandoned forceps delivery and only use vacuum. So their rates of vacuum delivery are higher in some places, closer to 15%. But here we're about eight and a half percent.
0: So why would someone, is it, and so I guess this is a leading question, but is the abandonment of of forceps as a result of the injury that is often occurring with forceps?
2: Yeah. So um, there's several speculative reasons why, but most, I guess the most logical explanations that are often cited are yes they're the concerns with with maternal safety for sure um and there's issues with training as well so because uh <laughs> excuse me we've had these <clears throat> shifts in practice uh in Canada and elsewhere where we're doing more vacuum than we used to. we used to do more forceps deliveries but vacuum kind of came more in fashion uh in like kind of the 90s and in in beyond and is now overtaken forceps deliveries everywhere. Um, So in no place are you going to find forceps deliveries at higher rates than vacuum. But in some places, that shift has happened so much. The pendulum has swung so far that vacuum has completely subsumed whatever deliveries were, were previously done by forceps. And that is mainly because of the increased trauma and the fact that as you start to decrease your number of, for example, forceps deliveries that you're undertaking, the opportunities for training start to decline. And so it's a little bit of a kind of like a, a, a spiral where or, or kind of like a, a self-fulfilling prophecy that the less you do, the the less you can do. And so it's sort of in some places just petered out. Um, and people are worried about that happening in Canada for, for good reason. The, the rates have been declining. And that's, again, why we're seeing those low rates of forceps in the U.S., for example.
0: This episode of the We Go There podcast is brought to you by The Bell Method, a fitness company that blends Pilates with pelvic health, creating choreography from science. You might feel overwhelmed at all the abs after baby programs promising to make you bounce back after birth, or maybe you're feeling unsure of how to exercise in pregnancy and prepare your body for delivery. It can be tough to navigate what information is credible and evidence-based. Women deserve better. I created all of our programs with the guidance of pelvic health physiotherapists, and we continue to evolve our programming to stay current with the latest research. At The Bell Method, we ditch guilt and bring balance to our bodies with programs designed to fit your life stage. We'll help you reduce incontinence, diastasis recti, and prolapse, so you feel strong, confident, and empowered throughout pregnancy, postpartum, and beyond. I invite you to enjoy 10% off your first class session with the code WEGOTHERE10. Visit www.thebellmethod.com for more. So, and this is something where if, you you know, and I I kind of know I had a brief conversation with your colleague prior to this interview and talking about sort of some of the problems with training. And one of the quotes that I had shared with him was something that I had heard in a podcast. I interviewed Dr. Michael Klein, who's really talks a lot about the episiotomy. So we had a great conversation. One of the things he said was, if all you have is a hammer everything looks like a nail so if all you have is you know a cesarean as a tool to deal with any type of obstetric emergency if you will or situation then you're going to increase those cesarean rates so if you lose the skill of forceps then assumedly you would likely have a higher cesarean birth rate
2: correct yeah. So, yes, I mean, that's the relationship that seems like the, the logical relationship. But, you know, there's been some places. So th- this is a really very salient question. <clears throat> Remind me to talk to you about Dr. Klein, because we had a really interesting exchange about exactly this um, a few years ago. But it, it's a salient question because this is what's happening in this space in kind of the um public with the public health point of view. So what you're saying is true. <clears throat> if you only have cesarean delivery, that's the only tool. We have nothing else in our armamentarium of of, of uh, interventions, uh, delivery interventions. That's all that we're going to see. And so with that logic, with that mentality, what's been recommended, uh, there's been, you know, these big obstetrics and, you and, um, and uh, maternal health organizations that have come together and put together consensus statements saying we want to reduce cesarean deliveries and here are some ways that we recommend to do that and one of them is to increase forceps and vacuum deliveries for this exact purpose right they're they're saying they they, they have that same kind of you know conceptual framework of things saying if we if we are you know reducing our our OVD rate, our, our forceps in vacuum. Then the only thing that can that we can do is do more cesareans. So let's try to reverse that trend. So, um, so, there, but this is where it's very tricky because we're saying, like you mentioned, let's you know we we don't want to have any unnecessary cesarean deliveries and we can talk about you know all the different ways we can define that but anyway if we want to reduce all the unnecessary cesarean deliveries that we can which is a public health you know priority this is cesarean delivery rates have been increasing it's clearly an issue for a a lot of uh, from a a lot of different perspectives but so we'd say okay well this seems really logical to increase our first and vacuum deliveries but we have we considered the fact that we really declined our use of these deliveries. So are are they actually safer than cesarean deliveries? Isn't that something maybe we should compare before we recommend increasing them?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So this is this is kind of the 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 pro, this is actually what made me interested in this topic in the first place. Is these guidelines came out saying. Let's increase our OED rate. And I thought, oh yeah, that sounds smart. And they thought, but hold on, are they safer? Do we know that they're safer right now? I mean, we have literature from the eighties and we have literature from the UK which is a different system from 20 years ago. Um, But do we know that they're safer now in contemporary obstetric practice? And so when we looked at that, it wasn't, there. there's no winner here. Um, It's not as though one is much safer than the other. There are, I mean, you're not in, in, when you need an intervention, when you're fully dilated and it's emergency cesarean delivery. So the, the outcome, bad outcome rates are low. You know, we have a, a really great healthcare system here. So in general, compared to other places, we're always getting some of the best care in the world. But still, when you're doing that relative comparison, when you're doing that analysis, uh, kind of a head-to-head analysis, you realize there's no hierarchy of better or worse. So I don't know if we should really be increasing these deliveries because, one of the things that's fascinating is how different the con- complications are with the, with the different decisions. So, if you were to have a cesarean delivery, what your rates of your rates of X, Y, and Z would increase. If you have a forceps delivery, your rates of A, B, and C would increase. And if you have a vacuum, and so on. So, it really depends on the person who is delivering to decide which of, which of those kind of suites of risk or harms or benefits fits their value framework. And so I think this kind of like, um, what's it called? Um, seesaw idea of like, oh, well then we can just like seesaw cesarean delivery and OVD I think it's much more complex than that. And so um, I, I I don't want to, I, I, I don't want to have the the message after this podcast to be, I think we should abandon forceps and vacuum or forceps or cesarean but I do want to say on that point that I think that it's the women who are being, who are delivering that are, that should be dictating what tools we have to hit that that nail. They, that, sure.
0: I love that. So, so giving people choice, but in order for them to make choice, they need information. So, right. right? How do they, most, most, you know, women who are going into birth, maybe they haven't sat down and looked at the data on what's the probability of, you know, severe tearing or, you know, a sphincter injury if I have X, Y, if I have a forcep delivery or prolapse with, you know, my vacuum delivery. You know, I, I do, I do get a lot of questions, I will say, from people. I had another one this morning, you know, I had a 3B tear. My my recovery was terrible. I've been diagnosed with a type of prolapse. I'm pregnant again. Should I plan a C-section? And I get this question all the time. And I have a friend who's a gynecologist nearby who does the bladder lift surgeries and the prolapse surgeries. And she's sort of saying like, no, like. You shouldn't just have a C-section because of prior prolapse. That was her stance. But again, there's also this, you want, you should, that person should have the choice in going fully aware of the situation, right?
2: hundred percent. So to, again, so my answer would be exactly is, should I, should I have another cesarean It's not It's not for me to tell you what you should have, but I can help you see what happens to women who did and didn't. And you can decide, um, we can have a conversation about it. I mean, that's what a healthcare practitioner, that, that's what their role is, to, to have that shared de- de- decision-making process with you. But just on that note, if you've had one OASI, your risk of having another OASI in a subsequent birth is is quite high. OASI. So, excuse me. Oh, thank you. I told you to buzz me if I gave jargon. So, so let me just... Just, peddle, just backtrack for a second and say when we talk about third and fourth degree tears we're talking about the tears in the perineum that involve an anal sphincter so you have two anal sphincters. we have two anal sphincters and it's actually really lucky we do because if you injure one then you have a backup and so a third degree tear is when you injure your external anal sphincter so it's a tear that involves the external anal sphincter and then when that that laceration goes even deeper and involves the external, internal, and external. Excuse me, the external and internal anal sphincter, and involves the anal mucosa. That's a fourth degree tear. So when we talk about these tears, we often call them obstetric anal sphincter injuries because they're the severe perineal lacerations that involve that anal sphincter complex.
0: O A Z. That's what the acronym.
2: O-A-Z, yeah. O A S I. Yeah. Some people. Also- we also say oasis, but I think that there's so many reasons why that's wrong. So I say OASI, So um obstetric anal sphincter injuries, yeah, or severe perineal lacerations, they they're um interchangeable. So um, so yes, you're right. People will want to know what their what what their rates of oasis are, especially, you know, have a repeat. Um, OASI is quite common if you've had a first OASI. it depends on other things like uh, how long it's been since your last delivery the degree of your obstetric anal sphincter injury the way you're delivering if it's going to be again with an instrument or vaginal or um, a non-assisted vaginal delivery so um, but but this is the thing so there are there's there there's um, risk of Complications with all these different they all these different options, right? So when we talk about these risks, what we're talking about is so you're in labor. There's think of the distribution of ways that a delivery can happen in Canada, and let's let's restrict it to first time moms. So we just simplify, okay? You're a first time mom in Canada. Five percent of the time, you're going to have a cesarean delivery without even having labor. Something's going to happen that is going to Make a decision that you are going to, or you're going to make the decision, you and your healthcare team make the decision, you're having that baby before you even go into labor. Okay, that's 5%. Then there's another 15% that are deliveries that you go into labor, you're in your first stage of labor, which means you haven't been fully dilated yet, but you're already in labor. <laughs> 15% of cesare- of deliveries will happen even before you're fully dilated, because you'll have a cesarean delivery before you get there. And that's usually for complications. Like, you know, you have um, hypertension in pregnancy or preeclampsia, or you have some other serious issue that is saying it's safer for us to have this baby before you, That that's safer to have it now than for you to keep trying. So now we're up to 20%, that's 20% population. So for the remaining 80%, these are the people who have, they've, they've reached full dilation And now there's four things that can happen. One, you can be fully dilated and you have your spontaneous vaginal delivery. You'll note, I will never call this a natural delivery or a normal delivery. And I hope everybody moves away from that because it's hurtful and it's inaccurate. So um, especially if we're comparing it to using an instrument through the vagina, which is just as invasive as using an instrument through the abdomen, if you ask me. So spontaneous vaginal deliveries will happen in about... Fifty-five to sixty percent of women who enter that eighty percent. Okay, so you'll have a delivery. You don't need any intervention, but we're talking about those other those that 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 remaining. So where are we now? So we we're we're at we're at like the last seventy-five 75 percent, right? Yeah. So in that last twenty to twenty-five five percent that's that's all of us that's a big number of women so it's 20 to 25 percent of all women delivering for the first time so it's a big number and so this is like we're fully dilated we expected to have we're having a trial of vaginal labor man we're ready to get this baby out we're gonna have like our the birth just like we expected but something goes wrong like oh no now I have to decide what to do. Sometimes you don't have that decision. Sometimes it's it's decided for you because for whatever reason, something about the way the baby is lying, or something about the way of the structure of your pelvis, for example, or if you have some kind of other pre-existing complication that says, "Listen, you can't do these other two options." But a portion of us will have three options. We can have a forceps, we can have a vacuum, or we can go straight to a second stage cesarean delivery. Right now in Canada, that distribution is about, in first-time moms, it's about 5 to 7% vacuum, and so then it's about 13%, uh, excuse me, 5 to 7% forceps, about 13% vacuum, and 5% straight to second-stage cesarean delivery. Second-stage means cesarean delivery when you're fully dilated, okay? So with that group of women where we're saying all these risks pertain to you, mm-hmm. again, don't freak out. We're in Canada and we have really great healthcare. Most of these things happen very infrequently, but some bad things can happen no matter what you choose. The worst things happen when you try a forceps delivery and it doesn't, or you try a vacuum delivery and it's not, they call it a successful delivery, which bugs me, but it doesn't, you can't, it's not achieved using that initial strategy. And then you have to revert to either another instrument or a cesarean delivery. Those are kind of the worst case scenarios because you've tried something, it didn't go as you planned. And so everything you can imagine mm-hmm. gets a bit scarier. But um, but the thing is, there's they, risks can happen in all of these things. What's important to ask is, what are they? and how do they apply to my life? And this can be different because we know a really important point of view when we think about cesarean deliveries is, it's not just about this birth. It also impacts our subsequent births. Now, I couldn't care less if I only want one child. So that won't even apply to my risk value framework, right? Mm -hmm. But if I do envision myself having a really big family, that also kind of puts that in perspective. Like maybe I will try my very utmost to do any, anything else so I don't have to do that. But at the same time, if you choose to have a forceps or a vacuum, you also have to think of what's my risk of having an injury? And if I do have an injury, what's a risk of having a second injury? Mm-hmm. In that same vein, if you're someone who really, really values your sexual health and you put it above many other aspects of your health... And many women do that. And it's obviously been dismissed for many years because why would women worry about sexu- their sexuality or their sexual health? But um there's a whole reproductive rights aspect about this all. But um, but if it's something that's hugely important to you, I probably would move away from having a force of delivery if a vacuum was available.
0: If a vacuum was available. So a vacuum well, and you and you didn't and you were and you were not interested in cesarean. Right, so so essentially, I am extrapolating from that that a, a vacuum is has a lower risk
2: to some extent. Would be a reasonable rate of OASI or severe perineal lacerations among forceps deliveries. What do you think that would look like? Like, what do you think would be a uh, uh, what do you expect that to be? What's the rate of these injuries in forceps deliveries in Canada?
0: Can you repeat that? I lost you there a little bit, just the last little bit.
2: Oh, sure. What would you guess would be the rate of these perineal injuries among forceps deliveries in Canada? Was it 25%? Yeah, it's 25%. So you cheated, but... The- <laughs> I read ahead. I did my homework. <laughs> so I, I, I'll, I'll clarify. So it's, it's actually... So 25% of forceps deliveries will have an obstetric trauma associated with it that doesn't it's not that's not just perineal injuries that's perineal severe perineal injuries plus cervical lacerations plus high vaginal laceration so it's it's kind of a composite of more than one thing if we're only looking at severe perineal lacerations then you're rated because severe perineal lacerations make up the bulk of that Composite, it's about 22%. Either way, you're looking at between one in four or one in five forceps deliveries. Walk away with an injury that severely increases your your risk of sexual problems, anal incontinence, fecal incontinence, flatal incontinence, uh, and, and you can imagine all of the emotional and psychological duress that happens when you have these injuries. People lose their jobs. They lose their partners they 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 have it's it's endless there's a lot of ptsd so consider that one four one five and i i urge you to speak to your friends or try to remember if you would if, if it if it pleases you your birth experience if you did use these and have these instruments in your births were you told that figure no no it one's seems told like that. seems like you should know if something happens one quarter of the time shouldn't you so, okay. I'm just trying to think about
0: the questions here because there's so many I could ask. Is so you let's go back because we have a lot of American listeners. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to this kind of idea that a lot of other countries have almost all abandoned the use of forceps. And it sounds like that's good given what you've shared with me. But I also oh. want to bring up one thing that. I remember bringing up when I spoke with your colleague, um, Dr. Rohan D'Souza, about how you know he was trained in India, and he made the comment that we used forceps, quote unquote, all the time, and yeah. we didn't have these rates of injury. Yeah. So is it that forceps are good, but we need to do them better, or is it forceps in general? It's never going. We're never going to get there because of the training issues.
2: Like what's okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, Uh, it's a good question and the the truth is we don't know for sure what the answer is because, you know, we haven't done it yet and we don't know what the counterfactuals are, but what we, what I can tell you, so there's uh, many things I, so we've, we've had this conversation as well where we talk about how he says we do forceps all the time and there's a lot of reasons why we, again, why we speculate why the rates are lower there of these injuries. One is babies are smaller, um, two is they always give a generous episiotomy with their uh, forceps deliveries. And we we should talk about the role of episiotomy because it's a big deal. And it's a big deal in the Canadian context. Um, but uh, and and so those are already two big factors. The other thing is probably it probably does have to do with training as well, because if they're doing it all the time, they're doing it all the time. So they're keeping up their skills. They're maintaining those skills. So um, and I I, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure it differs greatly depending on where in India you are, but it may also be that the alternative, like being a surgical delivery, might not be as safe as a non-surgical delivery depending on where you are in India. Sure. Um, So that reminds me that I should caveatize everything I'm saying here and saying that all of these relationships and relative comparisons I'm making are in high income settings. So this does not apply to low-income settings or even particularly potentially some medium income settings. Um, so that's important to make. But you ask, so so I think maybe before like I think what we should talk about is why why these rates are higher in Canada or why we hypothesize these rates are higher in Canada. <coughs> um, because what I I maybe oh actually I didn't I didn't tell you this yet. Um, so the rates are higher in Canada than anywhere else, in any other high-income country among all OECD but, countries.
0: Wait, what, what's higher? The rate of injury?
2: The rate of injury. Okay, I wait, I, that yeah. was like rate of yeah, forceps? Yeah. Wait a second, oh, time no. out. So yeah, the, yeah, rate, yeah.
0: the rate of OAZs, obstetric anal sphincter injury, yeah. is the highest in Canada yeah. of all the high-income countries in the world?
2: Yeah. Oh, I'm no, sorry. all the OECD countries
0: what's an OACD country
2: oh um the OECD country is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development they're like high-income countries essentially so they um there's well, you know Canada Denmark US Sweden New Zealand Switzerland Germany Australia the UK go on on and on, on, on okay so um, all the people that we would generally compare ourselves to when we're looking at different like kind of differential intervention and treatment and morbidity in obstetric care um we're the highest so the OECD so this is the I can't believe I didn't tell you this so the OECD puts out these um statistics every two years where they they use a whole bunch they they I don't know exactly what the rationale was for selecting these indicators but they they look at a panel of different safety health indicators and maybe some some other indicators as well that aren't health specific and they compare them across OECD countries and they publish this um So when you look at these data, they have, so one of the things they look at is obstetric trauma, which is essentially obstetric anal sphincter injuries, okay, Um, which is beautiful for me because I have, you know, this organization doing these really excellent international comparisons every two years. So the first time I looked at this was in 2012, and Canada has the highest rate of obstetric anal sphincter injuries compared to all these other countries, which I think Whoa, that's weird. <coughs> and not by a little. Like our next neighbor was something like 4 to 5% less, which is like an absolute percentage less. So let's say we were about 17%. So what's important to note about these comparisons is they're combining forceps and vacuum together, and they're saying, among forceps and vacuum, what are your rates of these injuries in Canada and Sweden and blah, 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 and all these different places? So they pool those two together. And that's why, that's why the rate of 17% that I'm telling you is lower than the 21 I just mentioned. It's because vacuum has a lower rate of these injuries. It's closer to 13%. So vacuum, still insanely high, mm-hmm. especially if you don't tell women about it. So um, so 13% of vacuums have these injuries, 21% of forceps. Remember what I told you about the distribution, vacuum is always more. So it pulls that rate down. So the pooled rate is about 17%. Okay. So we're about 17%. Our nearest neighbor is like 12%. And so I'm thinking this is this has got to be a this has got to be some kind of documentation problem. Mm-hmm. So I look into it, of course, go back to the sources. And again, this is kind of what spurred me starting to look at this really in depth using better data. Um, and no, it's true. We do. So that was 2012. They published again in 2015, again. I wish I could share my screen with you because the the figure is quite striking. But so so um same thing in 2015. We have that beautiful position that you know of being at the at the top of of that uh list of OECD countries for these injuries among forceps and vacuum deliveries. And then again in 2019. So in 2019, our rate of these injuries overall was 16.3% higher than everyone else. The nearest neighbor was Denmark at 12.7. Okay, hey, so why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So why? So why? So number 1, um again, these are all hypotheses and we the the truth is it's probably multifactorial and involves all of these things, but I'll tell you why the hints that I I think are reasons why. One is our relatively high rate of forceps delivery compared to other places. So like I mentioned, half of these countries, if not more, don't use forceps. So when you're showing these rates, what they're showing is their rate of these injuries in vacuum because they don't do forceps. So that already increases our rate of these injuries. We know, and this isn't that higher rate of these injuries in forceps compared to vacuum is not specific to Canada. It's everywhere all the Mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's, it's a very well-established difference in in rates of injury. So we have this relative relatively high rate of forceps delivery. So for example, um, again, if you look at in first time moms in Canada, that's about, let's say 5%. But if you look at that in a place that still does forceps um, like Norway, Their rate of forceps, they do forceps, but it's half as as common, as as often. So they do it in 2.5% of deliveries instead of 5. And so that's, and compares to the US, I already gave that comparison. So they're less, they're they're 1.5%. So I think that's one of the reasons why our rates are higher. A second reason is because of our episiotomy practices. So it's, it's lovely for me that you had that conversation with Dr. Klein because he was one of the forces uh, he was you know the reason why we had those excellent uh you know um, international randomized controls trials that showed that in individuals with a spontaneous vaginal delivery it does not protect you to have an episiotomy in fact it may from from these injuries it makes it worse so his trials and others as well showed us beautifully and elegantly that these are unnecessary interventions on people who are having unassisted vaginal births their data did not talk about assisted vaginal births and so in india when they're doing those deliveries every single forceps delivery especially in a first-time mom uh, from from uh, dr jesus account account every single one of them has a medial lateral episiotomy Mm
1: -hmm.
2: the other so the the interesting kind of um uh, difference in association between whether you are having a non-assisted vaginal birth or an assisted vaginal birth. This has been so there's never been any randomized controlled trials to look at this in forceps and vacuum delivery because that would be great then we could you know do the have the, the trial data and say oh it's clear here. The only one that tried to do it didn't accrue enough individuals to reach the power that it needed to detecting differences so we're stuck using observational data. But we're lucky because there's tons of it and it all points in the same direction saying that when you have a forceps of silvery, having not a midline episiotomy like we used to do it which is an episiotomy straight from the vagina to the anus straight down you can imagine how yeah. and if you have you know more insult that would tear straight into your anal sphincter complex right yes No, a medial lateral episiotomy which is a 60 degree generous episiotomy it's like 60 degrees away from that um, axis <coughs> And they're very specific about that angle um, will reduce your your chance of having an obstetric anal sphincter injury, especially with forceps and especially if you're a a first time mom. So that association is weaker with vacuum. It's still there if you're a first time mom. But for example, if you're a second time mom with vacuum, it goes away. That protective mechanism goes away. But as a first time mom, you should be getting a medial lateral episiotomy at uh, with a forceps or a vacuum delivery they do this 90 percent of the time in england they do this 95 percent of the time in australia so the two places that have higher rates of forceps than us guess what our rate of episiotomy is in canada with forceps delivery
0: oh my god this is blowing my mind um I, you're making me guess um it's going to be way so, low it's going to be super yeah. low
2: it's it's so if we I mean, just want to give you the exact rate here so so Okay, reported rates of episiotomy in Canada in 2018 were 65% with forceps. So 65% compared with 90 to 95%. That's Mm. a huge difference, okay? And that's a huge difference where you are not getting that protective benefit of a, of a, a properly done mediolateral lateral episiotomy with that instrument. And so, and, and with vacuum, so in vacuum delivery, it's closer to like 70% in the UK and Australia, whereas in Canada, we're at 38%. Mm-hmm. And so, and when I, and I look at these, I've been looking at these data for, again, a really long time. And you see that institutions that have lower episiotomy rates with these interventions have higher rates of injury. You see it, you see it all the time. And so I think why why are we doing less me? Why and our guidelines tell us to be restrictive about me. They're different than the UK and the Australian guidelines. And so, but why is that? And I think why that is, is I think as it's Dr. Klein's fault for doing such a good job. For being so, oh so man, busy, I wish we could have dropped his studies <laughs> and being so great at communicating the results and like mm. you know, being such a, a great knowledge translator that I think that we, again, I think that pendulum swung too far to say, you know, I, we call it clinical creep. So I think that because we've been, it, it's been hammered into our minds that episiotomy is not protective among spontaneous vaginal births. We just kind of assumed that that was the same for operative vaginal deliveries. And so I think that our practice in Canada, that's very unique. Um, in that regard is because at least partly because of Michael Klein being so great. So I don't mean to, to say that. No, anymore. no, this is, this is so interesting. Yeah. Like the fact that we don't
0: do like that, that doesn't have to be something that's hard to change. Like yeah. what, that, that, that's not a hard, like mountain to climb. Just give more people episiotomies if they're getting a vacuum or forceps delivery, if they're a first time mom.
2: Yeah. I right. agree. I agree. There's like there's one other thing that I think is really important about why I think the rates are higher here and it and it, it's it weaves into all these other reasons as well which is I think that it's not a priority. And again I'm not pointing fingers. I don't think that's one singular person or individual or institution's fault. But I think, you know, in places like in, in all the places I mentioned with higher than uh higher than average forceps rates, um they have these national initiatives to reduce obstetric anal sphincter injury. So there's a national initiative in Australia where they rolled out a care bundle that is specifically aimed to minimizing the number of people who are injured in this way in childbirth. The UK has the exact same thing, Norway has the exact same thing. These are kind of our nearest neighbors with respect to forceps delivery rates, okay? And in Canada we have nothing. So, so I I and this is not an individual problem. It's not, you know, because your obstetricians are like mean, don't care about you. It's just, it's a systems-wide issue, right? I think I think that it's been regarded as acceptable. I think these things have been regarded as minor. And it's also because our understanding of the consequences of these injuries has really evolved. And now we understand, like, no, it's not just something that you go home and it heals and, like, everybody's happy-go-lucky. Yeah. Um, so... so- so it's it's just that it hasn't been viewed as an avoidable outcome of childbirth um and i think that that's another reason why we we have these high rates where else would you have a safety indicator that's higher in canada than anywhere else for 10 years and no one's ever no one knows about this no one's talked about it. it's not a public health stress. like it's been 10 years that the oecd has us on, on the top of that graph and Nothing. The SOGC doesn't have a... It's, it's not a practice. source of
0: shame. Like, it should be a source of shame for us Canadians.
2: I know. But then the there's there's an argument. You know, the argument is exactly where your mind went. But then, you know, if we... Maybe we have these injuries, but we just repair them and they're usually okay. Because that's their point of view, right? But then if we don't have these... the, the You have to have the bigger picture. Then we're going to have increases in cesarean delivery. Correct. That is something that we have to think about. It's not... It's, it, it's not about one being better than the other. And we do have to think there are major risks cesarean delivery has, you know, they're not one in four, that's for sure. But you are told about those risks. Those are part of the consenting process. We talk about the risk of the cesarean delivery all the time, as we should. I just want this to be on the table as well. Mm-hmm. Lexi here. Okay, so let's shift to
1: another under the radar, not so hot topic for a minute body hair. Everyone's got it, but a lot of us want to live smoother, am I right? 10 years ago I started Wax On Laser and Wax Bar. Wax On isn't just any waxing and laser hair removal bar. We are the industry leader creating a safe space that inspires people to live confidently in their own skin. Over the years we've developed trust. Trust that you know you're getting the best quality and comfortable experience every single time. Whatever you come to Wax On for, it's going to be awesome. We've created our own exclusive gold wax formula that's like no other. It's as pain-free and long-lasting as it gets, perfect for all your waxing needs. At WaxOn, we've invested in top the line laser technology that's effective on virtually any hair and skin tone for effective results on every body, seriously. And we carry a carefully curated collection of products. Some we make ourselves, locally I might add, and some are from brands we've fallen in love with that adhere to our values and standards of clean, good for you, and female-founded. If you haven't experienced WaxOn, I invite you to enjoy 20% off your first service with code WEGOTHERE. Visit WaxOn.ca or download the mobile app to book in with code WEGOTHERE because there is such a thing as a better hair removal experience to help you live smoother.
0: So you could almost just... So anyone listening to this, if you're ever in a situation where you're like, okay, you know, it's time, we're going to try some forceps to get baby out... You have to say, "I need a mediolateral episiotomy, please."
2: Yeah, I, I, I honestly, like, I, I definitely would do that myself. I would never tell anyone what they should do. But <laughs> I think, I think the biggest message about if you're in that situation is, call me. We can, we can talk about it. But also read about it and you have to challenge your your care providers to talk about this with you this is certainly easier for those of us who have midwifery care that's the beauty of midwifery care there's there's some more time there um but when we're in that obsession, like we need to really be our own advocates we we know we can't count on anyone else so we have to we have to say i want to know what will happen to me if i what if i'm part of that 20% tell me about it tell me about the physicians in this practice in this hospital are we, are we champions for forceps in this hospital? Do you do, do you have much better rates compared to other places? Because that might be all the rates that we talk about are in the average Canadian contemporary obstetrician. So there could be someone who does 40 forceps a year and is like, you know, a, a dynamo. Um, but, and maybe that person exists and maybe that person could avoid you having a cesarean delivery, which you might not, you, you might be really averse to. So just ask, ask reed talk about it because even me i had my first delivery while i was studying this topic <laughs> <laughs> and when it came to needing an intervention i was like what completely taken off i i was like me i'm super healthy i'm never you know i'm childbearing hips not nothing's gonna be fine with me and i it's like i blocked out the fact that no 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 sweetie like one in three people have a cesarean delivery in our country like you have to think about what that might look like for you mm-hmm. and that's what I think a lot of us do that we just kind of assume that's not going to happen right oh yeah
0: so did you end up having a cesarean
2: birth or four I sa- did. so it was, a, it, was a, it was a it was it's comical in hindsight of course at the time you're just like so you don't know what to do but um um, I did have a Suzanne delivery and it was exactly the scenario where I had a choice and I was delivering in the hospital where I was working. I was working in a, um, at BC women's at the time I was doing my PhD at BC women's. That's where my office was. And so I knew the obstetricians working there and, um, but I had a midwifery practice, right? Because I had a midwifery group. But because it turned into high risk, I had an obstetrician. And she said, Julia, um, so I can do a forceps delivery or I can we can go straight to cesarean. Like, it's up to you. And I said, well, what would you think? Like, what would you say? And she's like, are you literally, are you're asking me that? You've, you're you the one doing the research. And I said, oh, I, I've only done the literature review. I haven't gotten to the analysis yet. But it was, it was even though it felt, you know, surreal to be in that situation, I did obviously have a lot more information than the average woman on the topic and opted for cesarean delivery because, you know, um, because I really value my sexual health and I, I really wanted that. That was a priority for me. And also my daughter wasn't in distress. So we had, we had time. So all of these conversations have to be, you know, you have to, you have to apply them to your own situations with a certain amount of common sense, because there's so many different things that, or the clinical nuances that are part of this conversation that we can't go into now. Like how, how low is the baby in the birth canal? Mm-hmm. How long have you been laboring? Mm-hmm. How, how exhausted are you? Is there, you know, is the baby rotated in the correct way? Like, Have you had an epidural or not epidural? Do you have access to epidural? All these things are all really important kind of little nuances that go into this. But that's not to say that no matter what situation you're in, you shouldn't be thinking about these things ahead of time because it really helps to, to have a bit of background when you're in that situation. You're like, you feel so alone and powerless, but you'll be better off if you have a
0: good idea. Yeah. You know. this, so if you had, can, can, you know, this is obviously hypothetical, but if you had potentially, your baby had been lower
2: mm-hmm. in the canal, you know,
0: mm-hmm. then it may not have, it may have been better than to opt for forceps, you know, versus going in for a cesarean. Because if the baby's descended too far, a cesarean can then be more challenging as well. Right.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. You're good at this. You've been thinking about this for a while. Yes. That's actually, that's a big issue. So that's what we call, those are kind of like the scary, one of the scariest things that can happen in a, a, from an obstetric point of view, because it's cold. you know, when you are laboring in the second stage, baby's not coming down spontaneously, something has to happen. You've labored so long. Sometimes the kaput, sometimes the baby's head actually kind of is, has been pushed so much it is kind of coming out of the, you know, there's, there's kaput there's a little bit almost imagine it being a little bit like conides because it's just been you've been trying to get it out it's not working and so what you have to do is you have to have a cesarean delivery where you're actually extracting the fetus from that impaction into your pelvis Mm -hmm. and you can do that in in two ways you can have the incision in your uh your your um you an incision and you can pull the baby out um by extract like, with their feet um or you can push or you can do a combination of both just they're actually called it's 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 quite kind of crude it's called the push or pull method um we're doing some analyses to see what the outcomes the comparative outcomes are um in some uh, internationally with those two different methods but they are the most traumatic, both ways, right? right because yeah. you have the risk of all of the the vaginal tract and the perineal injury, but you also have not only the incision, which you know some people would regard in itself as a, a form of trauma, um, although you know about it, which is, makes it a little bit different. Um, but you have also a higher risk of having extensions of that excis- uh, ext- <laughs> Excuse me, of that incision, mm-hmm. because you know everything is is a bit more frantic
0: harder to get baby out so your scar is going to be bigger basically
2: right so so the the one thing that we didn't talk about or think about yet which probably is important is to say it's not always it's not always just um an either or between these instruments and cesarean because the other thing is you can also maybe try to change your practices to avoid an intervention at all. I was, just, point, I, was, like, I was just,
0: I was, I was just going to ask that. So like, let's stop making women push on their backs. That's like the the hill I'm going to die on.
2: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there's a whole bunch of kind of like strategies that there's, there's actually not a ton that we know, like that is really like rooted in evidence where we're like, for sure, this is, a uh, first, sh- for sure, way that we can we can minimize needing an intervention. I mean, one thing that has been like is really kind of um, uh, rooted in the evidence or, or evidence informed is to have a con- like a, con- a constant support person, like a doula yep so i mean and it's a no-brainer it's not like it's i mean most people 99 percent of the time there's no risk of having a doula so it's kind of like a bad benefit but um but that has been shown in like Cochrane reviews to always be a um a force that minimizes your need for intervention now you can imagine that that is um restricted to a certain a group of people who have access to that kind of I mean there's 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 not everybody will have access to a doula or a doula like person Mm -hmm. um and so that's that's kind of the the difficulty with that but that for sure has been shown to reduce the need for any of these things um there's other things that uh like you mentioned like birthing positions that people talk about so it's different so the evidence is different whether you've had an epidural or not so if you have not had an epidural they say that you should um, be in upright or lateral position versus like a supine or a lithotomy position but if you do have um, an episiotomy they say you mean an epidural uh, excuse me, an epidural. Um, these these words are, yeah, they they make them similar on purpose to to, <laughs> to, to torture us. Um, is a recumbent versus upright position? So, like on your side, lying down versus upright, is actually shows that you will need. But that is not as strong as the without epidural was um, evidence.
0: Interesting, because I'm always talking about essentially the fact that if you're in a recumbent position. Right. And one of the top questions I get is hey, I'm planning an epidural. And, you know, I've been told that a recumbent position essentially closes the pelvic outlet. Yeah. Right. My sacrum can no longer flex because it's wedged against the bed. You know, I think it's a 16% flex that you can get if you're in a, a sacrum-freeing position, like sideline, yes. for example, versus on your back, it can only move 4%. So that's a big difference. Your yes. pelvic outlet's gonna be smaller, or we talk yes. about having to like push uphill. But you're saying because I often say to people, even if with an upper dural, like try peanut ball, try sideline. Like yes. You know Yes. It,
2: yes. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I was just reading about that. Someone wrote an interesting comment to one of my papers about um these injuries and said that they're trialing this like all fours position mm-hmm. um, for some of these deliveries, which um for you know for vacuum wouldn't work with forceps but that you know that's another one that i know people are interested in excuse me evaluating but even talking to dr just yesterday he was saying when they did these deliveries in india and they're doing a vacuum they are on their knees what make sure that they're on that they go on their knees to make sure that the angle of extraction is famous. amazing So i know so i i it's it everything with respect to like labor and delivery is amazing it's so amazing like first of all like that's not even talking about how phenomenal the female body is that we can do all this and like what our cervix is it's amazing but then when you think about all these practices that have have developed over time like some of them are like and so, some of them have zero evidence behind them and we just do them like
0: mm-hmm.
2: and it, it's obstetric is fascinating it, anyone who is looking for a career choice be a perinatal epidemiologist or like <laughs> so fun there's so much work to be done but um but yeah it's like it's it's uh it's something that we don't consider i think enough because again there's no downside let's just follow the evidence and see what birthing positions are associated with the least intervention. So there are those two things that are pretty rooted in evidence. And then there are other things that have conflicting evidence that we can use to try to avoid intervention at all. So one is delayed pushing, mm-hmm. again conflicting evidence. Another is manual rotation of the fetal occiput or the or the fetal head. So it's what it sounds exactly like what it is, you use your hand to rotate the the fetal head from a malposition to a favorable position or like an anterior position. Um, And so, again, there's not been any, there's, there's, there have been some small RCTs, but they've shown different things. So we're not sure about it. Some, our guidelines in Canada do recommend manual rotation and the UK they don't, for example. So it's not quite clear. Mm. Uh, And then there's also, and this is kind of an exciting area. (laughs) intrapartum ultrasonography so using uh ultrasound during labor to tell you some things like where that baby's head is more objectively than the way we do it now which is digitally so something to and and there are measurements or they call them um they call them ultrasound parameters that can be used that can give you a hint about the likelihood of actually having that vaginal birth so of course there's something like estimated fetal weight where you'd be like if that baby looks humongous probably we shouldn't make this woman labor any longer and we should just do a cesarean delivery before it gets into that situation where we're going to have to do the push or pull mm-hmm. um but the problem is they're not they're they're Estimated fetal weight is not great. It's not the most sensitive thing. Mm-hmm. But there are other things. There's like measuring the the um the like the head circumference. The circumference You're of circum- the parietal di- diameter and the abdominal mm-hmm. circumference. Like there's different measurements and different parameters that they use. And they all have there's a systematic review that was just written that show that actually one of those, those abdominal to parietal diameter, um Uh, Indices is actually more sensitive than estimated fetal weight, so it's another. And some people again, there's a there's a school of thought in France that the use of these ultrasounds during labor are you know really really necessary and can really change the field. So that's another kind of thing that we can look to that might help us not have to do this at all in the first place, not have Mm -hmm. to make decisions. Just make a
0: decision. You're saying about whether to proceed with an attempt of vaginal delivery or go to a cesarean is what you're saying.
2: Yeah and you know I thought about this yesterday and I wonder what you think about. It. I was also thinking like what is why are we so different from the UK and and Australia and I was thinking you know the other thing is in Sweden and, and you know Norway they have a midwifery led obstetric care model. Mm-hmm. So you know that's another anywhere that has a midwifery led obstetric care model has more spontaneous vaginal delivery.
1: Mm-hmm. Now
2: again like it, it's this is this is not to say that you know. Sometimes, like imagine, sometimes your outcome—if you have a spontaneous vaginal delivery—compared to your outcome if you a cesarean delivery. Just because you didn't have a cesarean, that doesn't mean that you have a had a better birth. It could be you had a spontaneous vaginal delivery and you had a lot of things happen that are really crummy that made you feel like that wasn't the greatest experience. Whereas, if you had had a cesarean, it may have been better. So. I, I, it's it's hard to kind of like the, to apply the, these kinds of things, like you avoid intervention. It's not always that avoiding intervention is, is going to be better because mm-hmm. in some subgroups of women, having a cesarean or uh, an instrumental delivery has, is actually safer than not.
0: Yeah, no, that's an important note for sure. And it's, it's definitely, it's a tricky one. I love earlier in our conversation, you talked about not calling it natural birth. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember you know feeling that deeply like myself even though i i was fortunate enough to have two uncomplicated vaginal unmedicated spontaneous deliveries but yeah. like and i was lucky but i also i also feel like you know it's we have to also acknowledge that some some of the stuff is not within our control some of it is and some of it isn't i wanted to ask you about um You know, I I had read that having an epidural could increase your risk of needing operative vaginal delivery. Is that something that you've also noticed in the data?
2: No, actually, no. So there's again, it's it's conflicting evidence, and um, so whenever they do a randomized trial, they show that this isn't the case. So I would, at this stage of the game, say no. I wouldn't. um, I'm. I don't think that that's a very Um, solid uh, line of inquiry at the moment but I do think that um, there is like you know there there are different courses of care if you have an epidural or not and one of those big things are how long we decide to allow a woman to labor before we say let's call it quits now Mm -hmm. and so if you have an epidural so if it's the guidelines on, on that duration depends on whether you've had an epidural and whether you've had a baby or not. Mm. And so whether you if you've had an epidural, we usually let people labor for about an hour longer before the guideline says, okay, quit it. <laughs> of course, this is you know up to clinical judgment in every individual case, but this is what the guidelines say for you know the average person. So um so it- it does having an epidural does change the the course of your care and um some of those things might you know if you have that extra hour uh that might that might change the way things pan out um or not having that extra hour so um the quick answer to your question is no it's not um it's not something that we counsel saying if you don't have an epidural you have a lower chance of having uh, an interesting
0: I'm going to have to, I'm going to try to look that up and find that research. Cause I had, you know, I always see these lists like pros and cons of an epidural. And one of the things that has often been listed as a potential con is an increased risk of, you know, you know, assisted vaginal delivery. So
2: that's interesting. So I'll point you to, so we have a guideline, like our society of obstetricians and Guided causes of Canada have a guideline on this, but um, I don't think it's, all that great actually so i would say that you should go to the um, royal college of obstetricians and gynecologists um in the uk they have a it's a i think it's if, if it's not public access just write to me i'll send it to you it's um their guideline goes into this very in a very detailed way particularly about epidur- epidurals so they have and they have like it in different scenarios too so i would um encourage you to read that one
0: yeah okay i will do that that's great um, want to make sure we're giving everybody the best possible information. Oh my gosh, I could talk to you all day. Um, whew, okay, so.
2: It's just the hospital overhead story. <laughs>
0: um, what about the um, question here? And I, I had written this out because I was reading some of the papers. You had so many published papers. But one thing that I thought was kind of stood out to me was the um, data on the fact that there are disparities in obstetric anal sphincter injury between Asian people who identify as Asian in ethnicity and white people showing that, you know, it was essentially, you know, that Asian women were of higher risk. They had more trauma.
2: So can can we dive into that? Yes, I would love to. This is something that I find fascinating. And I have a, a master's student who's working on trying to unpack some of the reasons why we see these these disparities. So she, we've done a systematic review and looked all over the world in every language and all the published literature. What are we seeing with respect to racial disparities in these injuries? Are we seeing anything at all? And so we restricted it to high income countries after looking around for a while because we thought, oh my gosh, it's such a different landscape. So let's see what we can how we can compare this in in high income countries. And so we we kind of kind of um decreased that search to look at high income countries, and we found that it's a very reproducible finding. You see this in Australia, you see it in US data, you see it in Western Europe, you see it in uh um, Canada, of course, uh, and um, where else did we see it? Was it was unbelievable how off how 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 similar the results were across the board. So it's it's actually kind of a beautiful thing when you're doing a systematic review to see this because there's basically zero heterogeneity in your findings. So we see across the board that people who are, are identify as Asian. In essentially, like as a, their diaspora in a, a Western country, um are having twofold higher rates of these injuries. And so, we thought, this is absurd. So we looked at how could this be? Okay, maybe it's because um, they are having babies that are large and they, there's some kind of disproportion between baby size and mom size. Surely someone's looked at this. And sure, yes, they have. Someone has looked at that. They People have looked at that disproportion. They've looked at perineal length, like the actual distance of, like the actual um, length of the perineum. They've looked at... Uh, birth weight is an independent factor. They looked at mom's weight. They looked at uh, the head circumference of the baby. Nothing has been able to explain robustly why we see this very reproducible finding, this very robust finding um, of these rates of injuries being higher in Asian women. And if you look at um, some of the studies that have done this very well and have actually looked at subgroups of people people who self-identify as Asian, then you see that it's highest in South Asian women. And so... You're gonna ask me why. <laughs> and my answer is I don't know. And we're trying to find out. So what we're trying to do here, um, at the Pearl is uh we're looking at um seeing whether so when I say they're higher, I'm saying they're higher than so twofold higher than white people, and they're higher in so the 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 rates that we're seeing are higher in, for example people of asian race in canada compared to people with asian race in asia so it's not like if if it's for something like it's it's been it's it's been quite disheartening how many people try to liken this to some kind of biological difference I and mean, we keep having to say like we're not interested in that you know mm-hmm. like like going down that I think I think we're done like measuring skulls like we're not going to do that anymore we realize that race is a social construct and it's not a real thing so no we're not interested in looking at any kind of biological differences It's clearly a social issue and so what we're looking for is um social like SES social socioeconomic indicators of why we might be seeing these higher rates in in western countries of asian versus white women. So we're looking at for example things like how long they've been in Canada for for uh, like looking at asian immigrants okay how long they've been in Canada and to see whether there's a relationship between how long an asian person has been in Canada and whether there's kind of a dose response if you know what I mean um so that dose um, response yes like a dose response to say you know is it the longer you've been in Canada that that difference between Asian and white people minimize attenuates Mm -hmm. so to say is is it that that would be a really beautiful finding to be able to show like this is clearly something about either access to care or communication there was one paper that very Thoughtfully looked at language barriers and did find that language barrier was an independent um, determinant oh, wow. of these things. So, so is it a language issue? Is it an access issue? Is it a cultural issue? Is it a, a, I mean, it, it goes on and on. But um, is is it is it something that has to do with um, a care delivery issue? So these it has to be something, it has to be something of, of, of this ilk. So we're, we're trying to figure it out. Um, But the, the sad thing is, the saddest thing is really that those rates that I just told you, which are already absurdly high, it's two times that. Yeah. It's two times that. So if you do have, you know, a South Asian friend who is, or an Asian friend who is, Having a delivery, um, I would say take a look at those rates and double them, and know that in Canada, people who self-identify as these these races are experiencing these levels of. And just talk to your practitioner about it. Talk to you, who you can talk to about that. Consider that because um, it's a real thing, and uh, and we don't really know how to prevent it just yet, uh, other than avoiding using those instruments altogether.
0: Right. Oh my goodness. This is, this reminds me of uh, a post I was reading about um, a friend of mine who's an l nurse in the US. And it was something that she'd posted or reposted. But the, the point is, is that it was almost that like they were at a conference and someone, one of the care providers, I don't remember if it was an obstetrician or a nurse, so someone made a comment that something along the lines of, Oh, well, you have to be really careful because women of color, Black women, have more postpartum hemorrhage. And it was like said as if it was a fact, like, well, Black women have, they hemorrhage more. And someone finally stood up and went like, there's no biological reason that that woman of color have more postpartum hemorrhage this is a care and a race issue yeah. and i was like thank goodness that person stood up and and because i love that you said that we're not measuring skulls anymore like we need to look at like what's the dynamics of the culture of everything that's at play here and access to care and whatnot
2: Exactly. And it is, I mean, it is quite, it's, we are not seeing these high rates in Black, higher rates in Black women. So it's a, it's a, it's a degree of racialization that is unique to this. So, you know, if you were, if you were to see these, these findings in all non-white individuals, you'd be like, well, that is a sign that maybe there's some kind of, you know, blanketed of racialization going on here, or, you know, there's a million ways you can go there, but that would be, but this is, it's curious in that it's very specific to this group and so um and so yeah I mean, <laughs> it does really it's it's a really tricky place to um to <coughs> excuse me to be as an epidemiologist because we're all about modeling exposures and outcomes mm-hmm. and I just had a fascinating conversation with my my lab about how do we model, how do we look at these models when race is our exposure? Because race is nothing. We know that race is just a proxy for being a target of racism. And so really what we're measuring is racism, but we don't know how to do that. So our proxy measure is race. Mm. And so already when we're thinking about modeling an exposure, we're like, oh, we're using this measure of race but you're already starting with an imperfect model. And imagine all of the different ways that people perceive race. So it's already such a coarse, problematic exposure. Mm-hmm. But it's important that we know about it because if we don't know about it, then we're never going to know where we need to improve, right? So, um, so it, anyway, it's it's a big topic, and I actually was lucky enough to um, receive a, a nice chunk from the government this year. To do exactly this kind of work in Canada, which has never been done before, we don't have information about maternity outcomes on a national level attached to race in Canada. We always extrapolate from the U.S. and then we say, "Oh, look how bad it is there," but not us because we have a <laughs> our, our healthcare system. We have our universal healthcare system, and you know we're just so much different. But. The one study in Canada that has actually looked at these differences in race, um, looked at preterm birth and found that we were the exact same as the U.S. And so this is all to say that we're, we're, we're uncovering, and this is in partnership with the Black Physicians of Canada and some community organizations, we're uncovering what the disparities in these outcomes are by race in Canada once and for all. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, you know, very quantitative, very crude, only like using numbers kind of work, which is going to be supplemented with a lot more of that kind of qualitative, important, nuanced work. It's all kind of pieces to the puzzle so that we have a better idea of mm-hmm. you know, our like the barometer of how we're doing with respect to equity in this, this care provision. Um, instead of saying, we kind of look like them, but we're not, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Oh my gosh, this is such important work. It's, there's so much, it's so rich. I mean, it's like, you've got, you must be very busy because you've got so many things going on. Like just what you mentioned from the, you know, the Asian white disparities with the sort of increased risk of, you know, sphincter injury with forceps to understanding like, why is it that, and I'm just trying to summarize all of the points right now and as we wrap up, but you know, why is it that, you know, we notice in Canada that we have high, even though, you know, we're only giving, was it 5% of births end up with forceps? You know, why is it that our risk of injury is higher here than a country that has a 9% rate of forceps? And it's right. because we're not doing enough mediolateral episiotomies. With, you know, our episiotomy rate is, we're so anti episiotomy, but almost, as you mentioned, the pendulum has kind of swung a little bit too far. Yeah. Um and so we have to also just have an understanding of of risk reward and and feel like as the person who's giving birth you should be able to have an understanding and make a decision like if that if you are one of those people who isn't an opportunity to potentially choose I'm going to have a cesarean birth now or I'm going to go down the road of potentially episiotomy forceps vacuum you know understanding what some of the outcomes are can help you make a more informed decision right
2: Yes, absolutely, and like, I think, you know, I, w- I would be really, I would be really disappointed if um, if people took away from this that, you know, oh, she's thinks that cesarean deliveries are better. Um, do not mistake me. I do, this is not what this discussion is about. This is about putting these issues on the table so that we can have a balanced discussion about all the different options. Um, and and have a critical lens for all of them so that we know it would ap- apply to us and in in our you know in our births um because I think because you know sometimes our culture makes us really want to reduce something so furiously that we almost minimize the, factors that might happen if you know if we have that favor that 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 result that we are we're gunning for does that make sense um so we minimize what might happen because you, you know you're you're so wanting this outcome of you know mm-hmm. reducing intervention um so i just i i just wanted to make sure that i said this is not about yeah this is not about saying that one is better than the other it's just saying that they all have their risk profiles and um you should know them all and uh it's up to you to decide um you should have the opportunity to decide it's your body no one should tell you no one should tell you you take the advice of the people you trust but no one should tell you what you you should do with your body um when you have the choice so amen mic drop (laughs) right there (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Honestly, it's um, sometimes I, I read these things and I I'm like doing this work and I actually stop. Like you see me in my office right now. The listeners won't see me, but I'm in my very you know very non-luxurious office sitting here. And I'll stop working and I'll st- I'll be like, but it's, our- <laughs> it's, it's-, it's just- she's wearing She's gone off. She's she's lost it. <laughs> and then I and then I, I I take some breaths and I come back. I'm like, no, it's okay, okay, okay
0: back to work. Yeah. Yeah. There's lots of work to be done. So thank you for everything that you're doing. Is there any sort of, um, if there are any additional studies or links that you would like listeners to have access to, please send them to me and I'll include them in the show notes. Um, Because I think so much of what, you know, I think it would be really interesting to read some of the stuff that you referenced. if, If we could have those down there, I think it would add a lot to the episode and Maybe we'll have to do a sequel. There's so much here. So when you have new findings to share, we'd love to share them with everybody.
2: I was an absolute delight and I, I would love to. And thank you. And thank you all for being patient with my outbursts and my terrible coughing. Death.
0: Oh, it's okay. I hope you feel better soon. I've been there. It's not fun. So <laughs> get that Manuka honey out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> have a good weekend. Thank you so much. Bye, Julie.
1: Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode. And in the meantime, follow us on Instagram at WeGoTherePodcast
0: and check out WeGoTherePodcast.com for more info.